You sit at a desk. They sit at a desk. You have sales reports. They have book reports. You need supplies. They need supplies. Business is a lot like school. That's why your small business should take advantage of back-to-school deals at Staples. Now, Staples 1-inch 3-ring binders are $1.92. One-subject notebooks are just $0.25. And two-pocket poly folders are just $0.35 each. Make back-to-school your business at Staples. In-store only while supplies last. Offer ends 9-1-18, limit 30. Log Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Climbing the Ivy on the Fan Side of Network. This is your host, Alex Pat, and today Adam cannot be with us, so instead we have former Climbing the Ivy host and Cubby's Crib editor, Jake Meisner, joining in. We're going to talk a little bit about what the Cubs have done so far in the second half. There have been a number of ups and downs. We're also going to get into a little bit about today's date, the date we're recording this podcast, which is August 8th. There's a few fun Cubs trivia things that happened on this date. Let's welcome in Jake. How you doing, Jake? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I am doing very well. So why don't we just get right into it? Uh, the Cubs right now are finishing up a series with Kansas City. They began last week, middle of the week. I think it was Thursday. They started their four-game series against the Padres. Very disappointing fashion. They split that series. Considering who the opponent was, we really kind of wanted to see the Cubs at least take three out of four there, considering it was at home, considering the Padres were coming in, I think, on a seven-game losing streak or something like that. And then they're taking on the Royals here. Uh, They won the first two games, trying to go for the sweep. What do you think so far of the Cubs in the second half? Because it's been kind of a roller coaster up and down uh, there have been some good things. There have been some not-so-good things. If you're just going to kind of sum it up briefly before we break it down, how would you kind of describe it? I mean, I think that the first 20 games of the second half have, have really just epitomized the Cubs' whole season. The talent is there on the roster. Sure, there's injuries, but there are so many guys not playing up to potential. And when they do, they do so for a series, and then – go, you know, two for 10 or one for 13. And it's incredibly frustrating because we know what this team looks like when they're firing on all cylinders. We've seen it in the second half, each of the last three years, we know it's there. The roster has not changed that much. Uh, But I feel like this whole season we've been treading water. And I say that, and I almost feel, I say it almost sheepishly because the Cubs are 19 games over 500, but it does not feel like they've played good enough to be at that point. No, I mean, the inconsistencies with the hitting, with the pitching have all been kind of moshed together and kind of creating a different feel for everything. I mean, you got a team that has the best record of the National League, but what's really funny to see is that the best record of the National League isn't even close to any of those American League teams. I mean, look at the Red Sox, the Astros, the Yankees. The Yankees are on pace to win 100 games, and they're going to be playing in a coin flip game. I mean, it kind of shows the difference between the National League and the American League right now. With that being said, you know, the Cubs still have a really good record. 
we're just waiting for consistency. I think you and I could both agree, and we've kind of seen it the past few weeks, the most disappointing thing as a whole for this team is the starting pitching. It has not been nearly as efficient as we've wanted it. You Darvish has been hurt. Uh, the one guy I kind of want to talk about right now is John Lester because he's really taking a dip. Are you surprised by that? No, I actually wrote about it um, earlier this week, and you know, I I had the same thoughts you did. What you know, John Lester was a stud in the first half. He was the only thing keeping the rotation afloat for much of the the first few months, and then mm-hmm. his first four starts out of the break have just been. Uh, I mean, three clunkers, really. But I I dug through the numbers, and and I'm not as concerned because I trust John Lester to not overthink it. You know, the big criticism with Hugh Darvish when he was struggling before he went on the disabled list was that he was in his own head. He was making it more complicated than it needed to be, you know, just making matters worse. But I have more faith in him than probably anybody in the game to not do that. And I dug back two years ago in July – uh, he actually put up really similar numbers, a 736 ERA and five starts, and he only managed 22 innings between those. But from there, he put up a 171 ERA in August and a 148 in September. So he clearly recognized some mechanical flaw in his delivery. He attacked it, he addressed it, and moved forward. And I fully suspect he'll do the same thing again. Yeah, I mean – some of the peripherals kind of suggested that he was due for a slump going into the second half or, you know, near the second half because he was putting up some really, really good numbers early on and not to take anything away from John Lester, but there were some games where he was a little more lucky than good. I think I'd point to that seven inning game against the Dodgers You had to give him a lot of credit for going out there and grinding away and, you know, throwing strikes. But he had like one strikeout and many line drives given up that were caught. Either it was a good player or was right at somebody. So John Lester was doing a good job and grinding away. But the peripherals did suggest that there was going to be a slump here, there. And then we're seeing it. And I'm totally with you. I think he's going to readjust here and he's going to get back at it. He's been too efficient for too long to just, let it go to his head. I, I think come mid-August, you're going to see John Lester putting up uh, some better numbers again. Uh, is, there, is there anyone in the rotation right now that is standing out to you lately? Let's say the past, I don't know, let's say the past month. Is there anyone that's kind of standing out to you in a good way or a bad way? Um, I've really liked what we've seen from Hendricks and Quintana. And I know that those are two guys that we've kind of ragged on uh, as a fan base for the last, you know, six months. And, and I think Quintana's always going to get it until he throws his final pitch as a Chicago Cub. People are always going to expect him to be a Cy Young contender. And I hate to break it to folks. That's not going to happen. But right. over the last, the last month, he's 3-1, and one, a 3-8-1 ERA. Opponents are only hitting 204 against him. You take that 10 times out of 10. You just – you do. It, it's that simple. You cannot ask for or expect anything else because that's what he's been his whole career. More than that is insane, and it's ludicrous, and I don't understand why people do it. That thinking is why the Cubs went out and got you Darvish this winter. They know Jose Quintana is not a number two starter. 
If they felt he was, they would not have thrown $126 million at you, Darvish. It's that simple. Uh, but I, I really like what we're seeing from Q lately. Hendricks, he's getting wins, but, you know, he's still getting hit hard. I, I don't – if he doesn't have his location, he's in trouble. It's that simple. And he, he hasn't had that control that made him so good. I can't tell you how many games I watched in 2015 and 2016 where he threw that change up. And I would have bet my life it was going to hit the bottom of the zone, and it almost bounced on the plate. And this year it's staying up in the zone. His fastball's flat. You know, it's just the movement's not there. The control's not there. And when you throw 87 miles an hour, that's not really a recipe for success. Yeah, I think lately we've seen better command from Kyle Hendricks because if you remember right at the beginning of – the second half, he had that start against St. Louis. It was St. Louis at home, and boy, did he look off. I think he gave up like nine hits in less than five innings, and he kept him off the board for the most part. I think he gave up like two or three runs, but boy, you could just tell it was way off. The way he was moving, where the ball was going, I mean, not even close. Now, lately, it's been better. He rebounded in St. Louis. He gave up the two runs early and then, like, retired every batter after that. Then he looked really good in his next start. And then the one in San Diego, or against San Diego, I should say, it was kind of weird because the command looked good, the stuff looked good, but it was his error that kind of opened the door for a few runs. You know, obviously that didn't help there. But he still looked better than when he did in many other instances this season when the pitches weren't being located Because, look, you and I both know he doesn't throw hard. And you have to locate when you don't throw hard. If not, it's either going to be a walk or it's going to be hit 500 feet. So hopefully he can kind of build on this a little bit. And you mentioned Quintana. I'll touch on him really quick. I looked at his numbers. I did an article a few weeks ago. The main thing with him lately is that his walk rate, his walks per nine innings, are double his career averages. His strikeouts, though, are higher than ever. His hits per inning were, like, lower than ever, but slightly. And his home runs, they were up a little bit, but it was pretty much his career average. I mean, home runs are pretty much up for everybody these days, so, you know, there you go. But if he wasn't walking guys at this rate, he'd probably be having one of his best years. I don't know what you think of that. No, I would I would agree, and I think that's why he's seen a bit more success in the last month. He's still walking just under four guys per nine innings pitched, but like you said, he's not allowing base hits. He's allowing six and a half hits per nine. I mean, you that that's such a low number. That's that's the lowest on the Cubs staff, and he's actually been really efficient. He's only averaging fourteen and a half pitches per inning. And you, you put that in contrast to Kyle Hendricks is at 19, John Lester's at 20, uh, Mike Montgomery just a little bit higher at 16. So, you know, it's good to see him being efficient. I think part of it is he pitches the contact well, and the Cubs have a great defense behind him. Um, but if he can just the, – the, the walks, like you said, that's the one piece, that if he can hone that in, I'd feel really good going into a playoff series with him starting game three. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I, I totally see that uh, argument right there. Uh, Cole Hamels, let's go to his first start. I think that was probably the most exciting 
outing that he's had probably all year because if you paid it's attention to what he did. I say it's probably his most exciting, you know, enthralling start since, you know, hit the Cubs at Wrigley. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, here he is. He was really struggling lately, really struggling. And he was throwing hard. I mean, his velocity was slowly coming back in his last few starts at the Rangers. But in this start, he, he topped out at 96 miles an hour. So that was kind of cool to see. He was averaging about 94 early on. He had the changeup going, and he struck out nine guys in five innings. That was fun to watch. And I know I don't watch him very often when he was with uh, the Texas Rangers, but, you know, I followed what he did. And, you know, he really lit it up in his first uh, outing with the Cubs. Yeah, that was super exciting to watch. Obviously, as a fan, um, and even as Theo and Judd, the last thing you want is to go out and get a guy to bolster your rotation. His first time out, he goes out and just gets lit up. And, and Hamels definitely did not do that. Nine Ks in five innings. And, and I was honestly, I was more encouraged by his start against Kansas City because he didn't rely on the strikeout. He used his defense. He gave the Cubs six innings, which, you know, as a baseball fan, you think, oh, that's no big deal. But with this rotation this year, that's a big deal. You have guys throwing just five innings almost every night. So getting that extra inning, giving the bullpen a little bit of rest. He worked around seven hits. He still only walked one batter. Uh, and these, this is the first time since, I mean, mid-June was the only other time that he pitched back-to-back starts and allowed a combined one and run. So he only did it one year, all year in Texas, and he did it already with the Cubs. I think being back in a winning culture, in a in the hunt for a postseason spot, I think it's just going to light something in Hamels that never goes away, no matter how old you are, what kind of year you're having. It just lights that fire in him. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of good stuff from Hamels in the next month and a half. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so because he's a good option to have if Darvish is not healthy down the stretch. I mean, that's why they got him. And, hey, you could have gotten a quality starter for essentially nothing. I mean, Eddie Butler really didn't have a spot on this roster. We were talking about it on last week's show uh, about, you know, the trade, and we all pretty much agreed that it was a good move to make considering you didn't give up much. So, you know, it it was a good move in that sense. Let's go to the offense a little bit. There's a lot of slumping players right now. Albert Almora, Addison Russell, and I didn't really mention this in the description of the show, but Ian Happ hasn't looked good lately either. Of all these slumps, which one are you least concerned about and think that it'll be worked out out of those three? You know, I'm least concerned about Schwarber. Um you know, there's still oh, he's in a slump too. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the one that really stood out to me, just given how well he was driving the ball. Um, you know, early in the year, he looked really good. A pair of that with a good defense and everyone was losing their minds, but yeah, he's only hitting 225 in the last month, but there's still almost a hundred point separation in his on base percentage. He's still seeing a ton of pitches, which makes me think he's seeing it. He just, it's just a matter of he'll have one game where he squares the ball up three times and it'll get him back on track. Russell. Right. I mean, Russell, Russell is what he is. He is a below average offensive shortstop with an above average glove. That's what I expect him to be. That's what I have expected him to be since last year. Uh, Even when he drove in 95 runs, people forget he didn't have great 
great peripherals. I mean, no, it's like, like what a 340 average or something. Yeah, he hit two. Well, yeah, he hit 238 in 2016. He hit 239 last year. He hit 242 in 2015. So at 264 right now, I expect him to drop another 20 points because you know if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> there you go. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, right now, I look at Albert Almora Jr., and you see a lot of pressing at the plate. I mean, he was never patient to begin with. He doesn't take walks, but especially lately, he is hacking at literally everything on the first pitch, and even on some just brutal, terrible, located pitches. Uh, I think really for him, that's, that's kind of his first slump, because I wrote about it for Cubby's Crib last week. He was going very well. He is playing more than he's ever played before in the majors. So you're getting the largest season sample size of Albert Almora. He's already started more games than he ever has in a, in a year. He's been in the league since 2016. He's 24 years old. He was going really well in the second half. He was due for a slump. And I think there's just going to be some adjustments made. And I still think that he can be an adequate hitter against righties, contrary to, to belief. But, you know, maybe he's still a guy you want to play matchups a bit more to. And, you know, that's fine. If that's what they do, that's what they do. It it might be for the best. But, you know, I just think it's something that's going to be worked out. Addison Russell, completely agree with you. And then Ian Happ, he is strange, man. It's hard to kind of nail down because there are times when he looks great. And then there are times just, oh, struggle is real. Really good at drawing walks, but you throw him pitches in the zone and you see that really long swing where he can't catch up to anything. What do you think about Ian Happ? Ian Happ is just an enigma to me and I don't want him to be, I want him to be like you said, he, he has times where he looks so good, so good, you know, league average, you know, that's where he tends to hover when he's plumping. But on the year, he's still got a 106 OPS plus. So he's slightly better than the league average offensive player. He's got a 365 on base percentage. Despite playing in 15 fewer games, he's already drawn 15 more walks. So, I mean, there's improvements. I think what frustrates me, though, is a fastball up in the zone, nothing. I mean, they blow it past him all day long, especially when he's swinging like he is. I think of all the guys. You know, the deadline's passed now, but of all the guys that I expect the Cubs to trade this year or this winter, I would say Ian Happ's on the top of the list. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I said in the offseason last year that it was very possible he could get traded, and it could be very possible now. You know, when he was playing really well a few weeks ago, you were kind of saying, man, we'd like to make a trade, and Ian Happ could get us something, but you also sat there thinking, this is a really valuable bat right now. We don't want to give this up because he's been kind of key to this offense. But, you know, lately well, it's been it, kind of a struggle. It, Hopefully even, it could work out of it. It's not, it's not even just the bat. The guy's played every position outside of catcher this year. That's so right. valuable. The versatility. With, with, and you can't – I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I am a huge Ben Zobers guy. I love it. I love the PF flyers. I love the, the stirrups, the no batting gloves, the just take care of my business, stay humble, love all of it but you can't bank on him to do what he's doing this year again next year in the last year of his contract. So do you turn to Ian Happ in that role? Do you look somewhere else, go find another veteran to pair with Zobrist, or do you just pray to God that he rounds this out in a good way 
you know, I, I don't think it's realistic to ask him to do what he's doing this year, a 398 on base percentage at age 37. But perhaps the logical successor, which is the only thing that, that really makes me wonder, would the Cubs really trade him? Right, and that's what I was saying to myself as well. And, you know, in terms of Ben Zobrist, he is playing fantastic this year. But, you know, one of the things is he's not an everyday player anymore. And I think one thing that the Cubs should get a lot of credit for is how they're handling Ben Zobrist because I think that the key to him having a really successful year like he is is not in, you know, he's not just like a bench player that pinch hits like once every two days. He's getting starts, but it's not the point where he's playing every single day. I think they've done a great job of balancing him and getting him in the lineup at certain times, and they've gotten like the most effective uh, hitting stats from him, playing him not quite every day, but often enough, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just, you know, and I don't know how you feel about this, but people rag on Joe Madden, unlike any manager I've ever seen in a Cubs uniform. But I have never seen someone who is is in tune with his guys and knows when they need a blow as well as this guy does. And he's done it perfectly with Ben Zobris this year. Yeah, I definitely agree there. I think that's one of the things that he does not get enough credit for is how he handled Ben Zobris. And what, what's great, if you if you go and look at Zoe, it's not like he put up great. It's, he's the antithesis to John Lester. John Lester was great in the first half, struggling now. Since the break, Zobris is on a tear. He's got a 12.09 LPS, and he's hitting 450. That's crazy. Yeah. He's 37 years old. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And every count, it seems like it's a 3-2 count, and then he gets on base. Like, as we call him professional hitter, Ben Zobrist, He's probably as professional as it gets on this team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and something that, that I love is, you know, he's known as a very patient hitter, but he's perfectly capable. If you float one in there, he'll swing at it. You know, this year on sure. the first pitch, he's hitting almost 400, which is, again, he's just a professional hitter. If you take him for granted and assume he's going to just take something right down the middle, he'll loop it into, loop it into left field for a base hit. Uh, he just he's a throwback in today's game it's all about launch angle and exit velocity he just does all the little things that don't show up you know in the highlight reels but makes your team better right on absolutely he's proven to be a very valuable asset this year so uh we have a few minutes left in our show about seven minutes uh today is august 8th and there are a few things that have happened on this day First of all, happy birthday to Anthony Rizzo. He was born on this date in 1989. And the year before, it was the first game scheduled with lights at Wrigley Field. The first scheduled night game. Now, it was not official because it got rained out before it was an official game. But they played baseball for the first time at Wrigley Field under the lights on August 8, 1988. So a pretty historical day. Uh, for the Cubs, now, I'm not old enough to remember when they put the lights. I wasn't even born yet uh, when they put the lights up at Wrigley Field. But I don't know about you, but I love going back, like, on YouTube because people have posted it and watching, like, the pregame ceremonies of the lights coming out at Wrigley. Everyone was wearing, like, tuxedos, and you had Bill Murray in the booth. 
that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of those things that in today's world, I don't know if you'll ever see a, a, an inconsequential mid-August game with such fanfare ever again. It truly was the end of an era in the game of baseball. And, and it's, like you said, it's so cool to go back and watch, uh, you know, watch the game, watch, you know, the news coverage of it. WGN did a nice spot on it. Uh, you know, watching Bill and Harry, you know, it's just, it's such a, 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 it just pays such great homage to the history of the game, the history of Wrigley Field. I mean, it's, it's just one of those great baseball events. It is. And there was a lot of hype. It was almost like a postseason type feeling when you watch the footage. Again, I wasn't there, but when you watch it, it felt like you were watching one of those postseason games from the 80s. I mean, the Cubs weren't anywhere near the playoffs that year. There was really no indication in the standings uh, when they were playing those first night games, but everyone was so amped up. It was so new that it was like a postseason game. Yeah, it absolutely was. I mean, they finished that year uh, in the NL East. They, they finished 24 games back of the match. There was yeah. no shot at, at, a, at a postseason berth. But, but the great thing was is, you know, it was such a contentious, divisive battle to get to that point. It's great going back and watching it now to just see everybody embrace it, see the players embrace it, and just everyone come together. Because a lot of people don't understand what a long-running feud that was to get to that night. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were those groups that were highly, highly opposed to having night games at Wrigley Field, you know, for multiple reasons. If people were just purists and saying, oh, we don't want night at Wrigley Field because it's meant to be played at during the day in Chicago, or, oh, the noise late at night for the kids going to school the next day, even though most games are played in the summer, but that's, that's beyond the point. So there were definitely a lot of opposition groups, and what's really fun to do as well is go on Google and look up the two groups you'll see the people wearing the tees saying, no lights, exclamation point, and then the other group saying, bring the lights. And I think in the end, you have to add lights to your stadium because most postseason games now, including all World Series games, are played at night. Yeah, my, my favorite group is, is the Cubs, the Citizens United for Baseball and Sunshine. My God. Kudos to whoever came up with that. You know, yeah, that, had, that's actually like, pretty clever. But, but what's funny is Charlotte Newfield, or Newfeld, excuse me, who was the chair of that group, has basically opposed any type of expansion in the years to come. In 2002, she raised a fuss about it, too. You know, she was just a very traditionalist in terms of, of Wrigley Field. And, you know. Yeah. But But it's just. It's, it just shows the passion that the Cubs fan base, the city of Chicago, that Wrigley Field, draw, like, it really brings it out in people, you know, good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing that I think is very interesting when it comes to night games at Wrigley Field, go listen to interviews with, like, some of the 69 Chicago Cubs, and they'll talk about what happened at the end of the season when they fell apart against the Miracle Mets. They all talked about how they lost weight, they were tired, and one of the reasons was they didn't play any night games. They thought if they would have played some night games, they'd
they would have had some better rest. Yeah, and it's, you know, and people don't don't look at it from that angle. You know, there are still people. I know people to this day who say that God still didn't want night baseball at Wrigley Field because the 8-8-88 game, you know, is called after a two-hour delay. You know, it's it's just I wish we could just let it be what it is. It, it was a great moment in baseball history, a great moment in the history of the Cubs. Clearly, we're talking about it 30 years later, so it's got to be pretty significant. And, and just just let it be. Just let things calm down. It is what it is. Night baseball is everywhere. The Cubs could not be a competitive financial franchise without it. That's for sure. Right. So if you don't, if you don't like it, well, it's just too bad. And if they played in the 84 World Series, if they won the pennant, they still didn't have lights back then. There were people saying that they may have had to move the home games for the Cubs over to Comiskey Park because you need the lights to play in the World Series. The 80s is really when that whole World Series at night thing really turned because back before that, World Series games were during the day. The 80s is when things kind of started to shift. Yeah, exactly. And can you imagine, say they say they won the pennant in 84, and can you imagine, say the Cubs were hosting the decisive game of the World Series and they win their first World Series since 1908 at Comiskey? Yeah, it would be very, very strange to say the least. Well... I would love to keep talking, but we are just about out of time. Jake, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. We had a really good one tonight. No, thanks for having me, man. Anytime. All right. Well, just a reminder that you can listen to us on iTunes as well as the site on Spreaker. So be sure to check us out there. We'll also be posting on Twitter. So keep an eye out for that as well. He's Jake. I'm Alex. Have a great night. We will talk to you next week. Today, I will not stress over the things I cannot control. If you live with anxiety or depression, you're not alone. Linden Oaks Behavioral Health is here to help you manage your symptoms so you can live your best life. Visit eehealth.org anxiety, and our experts will connect you with treatment in your area, including our location in Hinsdale. Help for anxiety and depression close to home. Linden Oaks Behavioral Health. Make sure your kids start the new school year with a healthy smile. Grove Dental can help you check off a dental exam from your back-to-school list. At Grove Dental, we offer compassionate, comprehensive dental care in a state-of-the-art environment that tailors to your specific dental needs. With 30 dentists and specialists in four convenient Chicagoland offices, we are your family's one-stop dental office. Take advantage of our new patient special, an exam and cleaning for adults and kids, just $49. Now that's something to smile about. Visit grovedental.com. Um...